0: welcome back to the 573 podcast i'm your host steven ebers and on today's episode we are joined on the phone with adam keith from land and legacy land and legacy is a consulting company founded by adam and matt Dye, who bring a fresh perspective to natural resource land and wildlife management their reputation speaks for itself as they are 2020's qdma al brothers deer managers of the year in today's episode We focus on habitat management and talk about preparing to use a land consultant, time wasters, important non-invasive and invasive species. Then we tie it all together with a scenario designed to turn a blank slate into a huntable location. Hopefully you guys can take some of this information and apply it to your own hunting properties and I hope you guys enjoy. Let's get into the podcast. All right, we're rolling. We've got Adam Keith on the line from Lane and Legacy. Adam, thank you for coming on. I know you guys stay pretty busy this time of year, so thanks again for squeezing us in. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. You know, it's it's not just
1: consulting that keeps keeps me busy, but it's the fact that there's two kids and and one of them being just just over two, and the other one being just under six months old. So between that, that's full time job, and then you have the consulting on top of that. It uh, time is very
0: limited in my world. Yeah, that'll keep you busy. Uh, for those that are unfamiliar with Land and Legacy, can you give us some background on who you are and, and what Land and Legacy is all about, what you guys do?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, uh, so Matt, Di, and I, my brother-in-law and business partner, we started Land and Legacy in 2017, and we consult with landowners across the country um, to address habitat issues, farm management issues overall just trying to maximize the overall enjoyment the habitat and the animal and the overall diversity that occurs on that farm um, so in four years we've consulted in 29 states um, a little over seventy thousand acres covered and it goes from small acreage from 16 acre parcels all the way up to five thousand six thousand acres so a wide variety that we cover with the focus on whitetail deer, wild turkey, bobwhite quail, and all kinds of small non-game species that we manage for to try to um, basically just overall create a healthy landscape. And so our main focus um, is just to address what may be blatant holes in the habitat or um, practices that are occurring that are more of a, problems uh, and that are are harming the wildlife rather than allowing them to flourish so we tend to we talk a lot about food plots but we tend to get out of um the the common food plots minerals hinge cuts and go into more of just managing from a holistic approach to where you know if we're doing something for white-tailed deer we don't want to be doing something that's harming uh pollinators or monarch butterflies or rabbits, or or even turkeys. So we try to work with the whole ecosystem that's native and and try to promote those to where we have a balanced uh, balanced landscape that that really the landowner, his family, his kids, and almost anyone can appreciate.
0: Yeah, the amount of depth that you guys go into, uh, you guys have your own podcast as well, Um, on your podcast and and some of the videos, I, I really appreciate because, you know, Most people just scratch the surface, and and you don't really know. But I feel like listening to you guys, I can I get a, like you said, a more holistic approach, Um, habitat, and oh, what were you gonna say? I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, no, I mean for us, I grew up on a on a cattle farm, and and Matt as well in Virginia. I was here in Missouri, and for us, we grew up where you know money really wasn't we couldn't throw money at our problems we couldn't throw money at okay let's go make the food plots it was pretty much sweat elbow grease and hard work and and so we just learned things over the years of of managing basically the school of hard knocks of going you know i've been doing food plots for years and outside of a hunting strategy it really hasn't changed much for wildlife observations um and overall size of the deer or quantity of the deer and you know, when you really think about it, that that food plot really doesn't amount to much of a of a percentage of the overall farm. So, you know, maybe we should devote more time into something that's got more impact and, and more long term benefits. So, let's manage the timber, or let's let's burn off one of our one of our old fields, or let's remove some invasives, things like that. It's just that's one of the big things that we see and find is that people are spending buku's amounts of time or lots of money. On things that are really just a small percentage of the overall farm, so trying to just manage your your management from financial management all the way to time management, and and that's just something that you know we can talk a lot about food plots. You can talk about minerals. You can talk about hinge cuts, but really, if you're doing if you're using your time wrong and you're just throwing money at it, overall you're just gonna make the family mad, specifically your wife, or or you're gonna waste a lot of time and look back five, ten years from now and say. And I didn't
0: really change anything. Yeah, uh, that's all good. Uh, Habitat, wildlife management, it it can be a real complex thing and you can have some misleading information in there. But, you know, every scenario is (laughs) different based on, you know, the number of factors that go into a property. I've got my own slice of heaven sitting on 17 acres and I'm constantly trying to find ways to improve the habitat and the hunting but for those yeah. that are kind of taking the step towards getting a consulting cr- service, what advice or approach would, would you give a landowner before contacting a consult service? Yeah, so, you know,
1: the big thing is what is the problem? Like right now, you know, is, is this a – first you have to idea the, the problems. Why would you want to hire a consultant? Why would you want to hire us as Land and Legacy because you first you've got to identify the, the fact that you, you've got problems. So do you, are you not seeing enough daylight pictures of the mature bucks that you're trying to chase? Or do you feel like you had more quail five years ago and you don't have those quail now? Do you feel like you had turkeys and they seem to be declining? Um, are you problems with the fact that you don't have, um, your, your family has not found interest in the farm and you don't want to let the farm go, you're trying to attract the, the family members to enjoy it more just identifying the problems that we can try to fix um sometimes it, it really gets into just looking to see uh, tr- to be p- part on, quite honest with you if you haven't even figured out the problems that you're facing yet um then when you do reach us then it's hard for us to to help you if you don't know what we're trying to fix and then at the same time though if some of the problems are just little bitty little bitty tweaks, then there may not be a reason for you to hire us. It may be easier to figure that out through one of our podcasts or one of our videos. To go, oh, that makes perfect sense. I mean, we give a free service every single week to try to help more than just people we work with. So, the first and foremost is try to identify the problems that are that you're facing, and and just try to see um, what we can help you achieve if you were to hire us.
0: Okay. Now, I don't I don't think we're gonna solve all the uh the habitat questions in this podcast, but I think, you know, maybe with your help we can save a a lot of guys and gals out there some time, maybe a little bit of money. What quote time wasters would you tell the DIY folks out there to kind of avoid maybe some trends or tips that you see out there that you feel mislead people into thinking they're getting better results? <laughs> well, how much time you got? Oh man. Um <laughs> I'd say, you know, Matt
1: and I, we've done, we're coming up on our podcast 300 uh, in the next couple of weeks, and so we've done 300 podcasts over the course of four years, and I'm not sure we've addressed all the issues in habitat, <laughs> so it's a long, it's a long road to hoe, but, um, you know, some of the biggest time wasters that we see is, is uh, well, one of the big ones, because it's most popular, is food plots, Now we, I'll be up front, we plant food plots. We add food plots, we promote food plots, we talk about food plots with landowners, but the big thing is we have to understand that you're not going to change your overall landscape on 1% or 2% or even less than 5% of the overall property. You may increase observations, but you're most likely not going to change the size of the deer, the amount of deer, the the amount of turkeys. You may just readjust the way they utilize your neighborhood to where they spend a little bit more time in your food plot but you're not changing anything you're not adding making bucks go from a group of three and a half year old bucks that average 130 to 150 Uh, it's just not going to happen and i mean so you mentioned you had 17 acres how many food plots do you have on the 17 acres
0: i've got one one acre food plot
1: so it doesn't add up to much of the percentage of the overall farm and that's the case Nine times out of ten, it's less than 5% for people. And I use the analogy of, like, let's say you're a you're a baseball player and you're a pitcher and you throw a knuckleball once in a blue moon. When you go to practice and you're trying to do your bullpen, are you throwing a knuckleball the whole time? No, you're working on your location, your fastball, your curveball, your slider, your changeup, whatever the pitches that you use more consistently. You work on those. You don't focus your time on the thing you do once in a blue moon. So why do we go to our farms and spend most of our our budget, most of our time on something that's less than five percent of the overall farm? It doesn't make any sense. And so I, I, I see that all the time of guys who are focused on, you know, they're buying a they're buying a no-till drill, or they're buying a cripper, they're buying sprayers, they're buying discs, they're buying plows, they're buying two-row corn planters, four-row corn planters and it's less than 5% of the property. When you could use that money, that time, to go in and manage the forest and create diversity within your forest if you're in a, in your, if you're in a timbered part of the world and mix in woodlands or savannas or glades or restore a, a young forest, a micro clear cut, and add diversity throughout that other percentage of the farm that makes up 90% of the farm and go, Whoa, that was changes that the deer are impacted by the birds, the turkeys, the quail, whatever it may be. Um, And you could take that right into saying, you know, coyotes are an issue. That's another big time. Uh, You see a lot of guys during soon as deer season over, they roll right into trapping and they trap for a month and a half. But so much research has shown us that if you trap coyotes or you trap raccoons, it's not a question of years or usually months. It's weeks or days before that void that you put in the in the landscape of being predator free is quickly filled back because of transient coyotes moving back in on on your farm now that there was an opening in the in the neighborhood. So, how many times do you see people running traps constantly as soon as deer season ends, thinking they're saving fawns or saving turkey poles or saving quail? When really, they might create this void of predators for a few months or a few weeks but by the time the next season rolls around it's already filled so you would be better off running a chainsaw for that time frame and saying okay well at least now i have really good habitat so even though i have coyotes or i have predators at least my prey species have a place to hide and uh so food plots trapping being another big one uh, and uh, another common one i see is uh supplemental feeding or uh overall feeders um now there are some states where it's legal to feed it's going to be hard for guys to compete if they're not feeding um just because deer are so conditioned to using feeders but it's not something that we should dump thirty thousand dollars into every year and say i've got the best i'm i'm feeding 33 percent protein year round and i'm feeding corn year round because what you're doing is you're trying to create a a supplement for the deer to live off of because they can't find that someplace else in the neighborhood. But at the same time, you're doing the very same thing for raccoons, um, being a, a, a big one, is going, well, if I really think about it, I'm have more pictures of raccoons on Peters than I have deer. And so you're trying to remove raccoons, but at the same time, through nature's natural cycles, when limited resources are, are on the landscape, some of them die or have to move on, and you're basically preventing that because you're giving them a supplemental feed, just like you think you're giving your deer. So, those are big ones that can either cost a a lot of time or b cost a lot of money, and really don't affect the deer a great amount, especially for most guys who don't have thousands of acres. Yeah,
0: that all makes sense, and w- and when you put it like that, it it, it all connects as well. You know. Like you said, you feed the raccoons. You're attracting them, so you're bringing more, more predators on your property while simultaneously trying to get rid of them by trapping. It, it all makes sense. I do have one question, just off, based off what you said. Um, do you, I mean, in a general sense, recommend that food plots are are less than five percent of your property, or does that just depend? Typically, I mean, I I just I
1: ask this all the time, I, I pull people on social media, not only on our own page, but in groups. And I say, how many total acres, how many acres of food plots? And and then I just, I go based off of a lot of our, all of our consults and say, okay, what's the total acres? That's one of the first questions we ask, um, is just how many total acres, how many acres of food plots? And it's just all on average, almost always, 98% of the time, it's less than 5%. Um, the people that have it greater than 5%, when you think about it though, um, it on average University of Tennessee extension did some great research and found that a typical one acre food plot costs about 3 to 350 dollars an acre every year to maintain and plant and and, and take care of. So um, if you are if you're increasing acres of food plots you're automatically increasing acres of expense. And so it's not like something that you're doing is going to be greatly improving the the health of the deer while at the same time not also costing a ton of money to do that every on every acre so you know if if it's 300 bucks an acre to to plant a food plot and you add five acres it can get pretty expensive and at the same time i don't agree I, i believe that that cover is more important than food and i think they both are important but I've hunted some farms, and we currently hunt on a farm that's got acres and acres of alfalfa and cover crops, corn. It's, it's a cattle farm, so corn gets cut early in August or early September, and then immediately gets cover cropped. And so, I mean, we're on a farm that's a couple hundred acres, and or several hundred acres, and there's probably several hundred acres of. Either alfalfa, which is phenomenal, or cover crop, which is the same stuff we plant in our food plots to makes the turnip, radishes, wheat, cereal rye, things like that, and and it still is very difficult to get deer during daylight on that farm. And uh, my brother killed a nice buck on one uh, just a few weeks ago, one of the, the second to last night of season. And what his strategy was was to back way off the food and push. He basically pushed right up next to the property line because, frankly, that's where the deer, the deer were bedded on the neighbor because that's where the cover was because the cows pretty much go on every acre of these of this farm that we hunt. So when you have that, that's just to me a telltale sign that, regardless how great the food is, regardless of how many acres are, they still have to have quality cover to survive. So it would be more important to me to have quality cover
0: in conjunction with pretty good food rather than saying I want more and more acres of food plots okay yeah that's that's good stuff right there and I know that you guys preach you know diversity it seems to be the common denominator when you guys talk and you also talk about bringing these properties back to their native landscape Um, since you know we're we're a Missouri based podcast we uh, most of our audience is from Missouri um, I'm going to kind of narrow it down there, but maybe maybe this will resonate with people just in the Midwest in general. But uh, my, my question is, can you tell me what non-natives you commonly see on properties in and around Missouri that if removed would increase or improve the habitat? Mm, yeah, that's a great question. That's uh, Invasive
1: is one of the most overlooked aspects of land management. Um, so if you're in the northern part of the state, you're probably going to run into, especially if you're in close proximity to Kansas City, Columbia, Jeff City, or uh, St. Louis, you'll see a lot of bush honeysuckle um, or, or autumn olives. Uh, both are shrub-growing plants that have little berries, both of them being red most of the time. Uh, They hold their leaves longer in the fall than a lot of our native species. And so um, they're kind of easy. Once you see them, it's really hard to not see them. Um, Those being two, they're very, very uh, difficult um, from the standpoint of they make a lot of seeds when they get established. So there's a huge seed bank that they can fill up. But um, the the, the problem I'm seeing with those two is that they start filling up the understories of your woodlots to where... Um, over time, if you have an oak hickory forest, and that's the that's the top level of trees, but then the next mid-layer of trees is autumn, olive, or bush honeysuckle, once that top layer is either cut or killed um, or dies from natural causes, it's not going to be oaks and hickories that grow back up and in 100 years we have an oak hickory forest. It's going to be a mix of invasives and I don't know if we've gone through this cycle enough to know that uh, what it's going to be in 100 years. But I will tell you, it's not going to be Oak Hickory. It's going to be some sort of invasive, most likely, because that's what the understory is filling up in. So if you're in an area close to them, uh, close to those those cities, you definitely you definitely need to be on the lookout for that because that's something that's, that's very common um, in the northern part of the state as well. Southern part of the state? Honestly, uh, if you're in the Ozarks where I'm at, or a little bit east, um, you can have autumn olive and bush honeysuckle. Um, but a big one that we're having in our open open fields would be Lespediza. and that kind of goes even all the way through the state. But here in the Ozarks, it seems like Ceriopsledesma is stronger than than uh, it is up north. Uh, and that's a that's a legume that's going to be three three foot tall at the max kind of branch and kind of stemmy almost feels a little bit like it's got a woody stem but it's just got a lot of lignin and uh, makes a pile of seeds about the size of clover and can lay in the seed bank for 80-100 years before it ever dies and so if it makes and each plant can make hundreds of seeds so um, if it gets established it can quickly turn an old field into a, a monoculture cereus lespedeza and that's, that's our complaint with monocultures our invasives is they don't have natural uh, predators or pests to kind of keep them in check. They they so they can just flourish and uh, they quickly create monocultures. Which monocultures in any ecology class is going to tell you it's bad because you don't attract as many insects or uh, overall there's just not as many animals that can utilize it. So down south you're going to look at three espadiza up Midwest and, and northern part you probably autumn olive and bush Um, and those are the, the big three
0: uh, invasives that come to mind here in Missouri. Okay, now let me let me throw something else in there. What natives do you see that Missouri is lacking nowadays that would help improve the habitat if reintroduced to the prop, to a property? Mm, yeah,
1: um, well, I'll, I'll give you one word that kind of has a negative connotation that that is now lacking in a lot of a lot of the state in my opinion and that is shrubs but typically they get lumped into one word and although leopold talked about it way back when when he wrote his book um that's that's uh, San county almanac that's kind of one of the greatest books ever written about wildlife management but um shrubs are lacking and they get lumped in the word as brush so cattle farmers crop farmers even people in suburbs probably say we need to go mow down that brush and and that brush is typically either um, shrubs or young forest and both young forest and shrubs being vital for uh, ecosystem health and, and diversity um, and so when they're getting cut then you have basically you either go from grass to tall trees and you don't have that mid-story uh, mid-level shrub that that is going to produce either a lot of times soft mass a few times hard mass it's a hazelnut um, but very lacking um, and not only not only the shrubs I think the, the two big ones two big groups are shrubs are very lacking and forbs or um, broadly plants because a lot of farmers a lot of people over time have either sprayed out and use 2,4-D or uh, glyphosate and, and various chemicals that you would use in crop fields and so Uh, those broadleaf plants have have been killed out or just are being dominated by grasses because of lack of disturbance. So forbs and shrubs, um, which if a man was just to buy a farm and convert it into just nothing but forbs and shrubs, it would be a phenomenal farm uh, for uh, quail and turkeys and deer as well because deer are eating the forbs and woody browse is is great on the shrubs. So those two, um, if you want to get into details on Species for shrubs: American plum, um, smooth or winged sumac, um, or it was various types of dogwood, whether it be uh, rough leaf or gray dogweed uh, or dogwood Sorry, and then also um, in the in the woodlots, you could say uh, you could even class flowering dogwood as one of them uh, that would be great okay. um, for forbes. Any of the wildflowers, I mean. Anybody who's read Missouri Conservationist magazine probably knows that pollinators are kind of on red alert right now. We're we're all concerned about it, uh, or should be concerned about it, and the monarch butterfly being one of the big ones. um, And and they really, you know, when we're talking about insects, we really need to talk about flowering plants. And when common milkweed is getting sprayed out or mowed down, and um, various forbs are getting sprayed out, it's hard for insects. We need those forbs, those flowering plants to, to make pollen so they can then cross pollinate and, and survive. So, um, yeah, there, there you go. I mean, whew, that's that's uh, don't even get me started on that, but that's, that's that'd be a good start if you were managing for more shrubs and more forbs.
0: Well, that's all that's that was some some really good information, and um, I, I'm if you're a habitat manager. Or, or or somebody listening to this podcast that wants to improve their habitat, I definitely recommend listening to Land and Legacy's vegetation series. You guys just finished up, am I right on that? You guys finished yeah, up Yeah, just finished it up. Okay, yeah. I, I loved every second of that and uh taught me quite a bit because I don't come from a uh, a forestry background or anything like that. And so I'm about to show you my true colors here when I ask you this. Um, Yeah, let's hear it. Are you able to plant these shrubs and forbs, or are you mostly getting these forbs and shrubs from a controlled burn?
1: So it would all depend on the location and and the amount of activity that has occurred there in the past. The wonderful thing about a lot of this is if you're in a timbered area, they're probably in the seed bank, and you just need to thin the timber and let God sunlight shine down into that timber and stimulate uh those plants to grow you can speed that process up with the prescribed fire but really just getting god's sunlight to shine into that forest floor where it hasn't shined in years would be a huge start um, places where you wouldn't find these uh these plants most likely if you left it alone and tried to encourage them would be uh uh, an area that's been crop fields for years and years and years, or an area that's been a pasture and overgrazed for years and years, um, where there's been lots of chemical, lots of over browsing. Those would be places you wouldn't find it, but when it comes to the shrubs, you're most likely gonna have to plant those, and Missouri Department of Conservation has a great nursery where you can buy a lot of those, A little late to the game now, uh, with most of them being sold, but. Every year you can go buy them for 50 cents or less than 50 cents of bare root seedling and and just be off to the races um, to where you can have shrubs on your plate. I think it's vitally important to have those. CRP gets a great, you know, a lot of people rave on CRP and how it's great bedding, but really you need woody structure in those grass areas, those mixed prairies, to have great bedding. So if you've just got acres and acres and acres of grasses and forbs, you don't have great bedding you've got okay bedding and if if bedding is very poor in the neighborhood yeah they should, of course they probably bed in that grass field but if you have a mix of uh, shrubs and scattered around like polka dots you're going to have way better bedding infinitely better bedding than you would if it's just straight grass
0: okay now i'm going to paint you a picture because i think i think this transitions well into the scenario that i wanted to present to you um Let's just say you've got a three-acre, uh, you know, really try to be picturing this in your head here because this, this might get a little confusing, hopefully not. You have a three-acre piece of land that the topography of it is flat. The shape of it is nearly perfect square. You've got a lot of woods to your north. You've got a lot of woods to your south. To your west, you have rotating ag crop, whether it be soybeans or or corn, and then to your east, about 100 and 150 yards away, you have uh, daily human pressure, whether that be cars going in and out from, you know, leaving for work, kids playing in the yard, whatever the case may be. Um, this is a clean slate. the uh, The landscape is just mowed grass. Um, there. Pretty monoculture, and what would you guys do to like turn this clean slate into a uh, a wildlife paradise?
1: Well, my, my first question, I'm going to pretend this is a console. So my first question is, you know, is this a what kind of access do I have? Can we walk the edge of the crop field in? Uh, what's limited in the in the area? So. I'm going to assume, because nine times out of ten, young forest is limited. Um, so, are are the goals to have a hunting destination in this three-acre field, or are our goals to have great bedding in this three-acre field?
0: Well, uh, probably great bedding, because you have that ag field where that could be their destination food source. Okay.
1: So... If if this is my situation and I know the deer are going to be somewhere bedded in the woods or in this field, um, this is where I'm going to really get creative and I'm going to I'm going to ask you even more questions. But my, if, 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 do we have control to manage inside the timber as well that surrounds this three acre field?
0: Uh we'll say in this scenario you do. Okay, so that
1: that helps. All right, so the question. We'll, we'll just go into it here um as anybody who's hunted crop fields knows it, it's very hard to define where deer are going in and out of a crop field it could be on this end uh one night and it could be 100 yards up the next night um and, or somewhere in between the following night so it gets a little bit difficult as an archery hunter to to uh, define where they're coming out so if i've got this three acre field i see it's a perfect combination to Bring in deer closer to a food source um, to where there's a better chance of seeing daylight activity. And I say that because how many times talking to buddies, talking to fellow hunters or reading social media forums, do you see people have po- pictures of a really big buck? It's 2 a.m. in the morning and they're going, how do I get this deer on camera? Like did I, did I bump him? Did I make him nocturnal? Typically what's occurring in my opinion is, the deer are just not bedding close to that camera. And so you have to bring bedding typically closer to a food plot, closer to a camera to get daylight activity. And so the biggest issue that we face is trying to bring in bedding closer to our farms where they're not bedding two parcels over and then you see them in the night and you think that you bumped them. No, you don't really see a lot of mature deer or any deer bed down and stay bedded down all through the day and four hours into the night and then stand up and start moving. They're typically moving right there at last block. It's just a question of whether or not they're moving on your place or closer to where they were bedding. And so if we can create that to be on your place, there's a better chance of seeing them during daylight. So if we know the crop field is going to be at the majority of their food and we know that somewhere, wave your arm, direction away from the crop field they're bedding we have to then define how to bed, how to make them bed on on your place and so if i've got that three acre field what i would probably do is take a half acre maybe three quarters of an acre make that a food plot and i put that in the place that i can access the best whether that be on the north side of it the east side the west the south whatever it may be i'm going to put that in the place that i can access the best and by access i mean go right to the edge of it, poke my nose up in a tree, there into the food plot, and then walk out. If my feet are walking across that food plot, I've messed up in my architecture or layout. I should not do that. That's the recipe of disaster. Don't do it. And so if you can find that area in that three-acre food plot or three-acre field, that's where it needs to go. And I use the analogy a lot of wilson from home improvement uh way back in the 90s uh wilson was a neighbor to the taylors on on that show and we never got seen nose down basically uh he was always just peeking over the fence but he was never exposed so we should hunt our properties like that where we work to fringes we poke poke our nose over the fence we peek in we see what's going on but we're not fully exposed and so that's the biggest error that we that we can make uh because Once again, we're trying to increase daylight activity. It's hard to hunt deer that are nocturnal. And the two ways to fix that is to make them bed closer. And then also don't disturb them and don't abuse them and don't give them pressure to feel like they have to wait till after dark to move. So I've taken a half acre or three quarters of an acre of this three acre field. I've turned it into a food plot. And I'm not doing what's in the, I'm not doing beans or I'm not doing corn that's already out in the field. I'm doing greens, or I'm doing clover. I'm doing something like that that's a little bit different, because deer, just like us, they want a diversity in their diet, so they're not going to eat the same thing over and over and over, so I'm going to give them something different. Now, I'm going to take that three-year field, and I'm just going to assume it's not crops. I'm going to assume it's old field. It used to be pasture. I'm going to look and see what what is the base, and so, I mean, I'll base an assumption and say probably cool-season grass, like tall fescue or smooth brome. Um, given the region in central Missouri. And so I'm going to go into the spring or fall, and I'm going to spray it with glyphosate, and I'm going to kill out that base, and I'm going to promote forbs, early special plant communities like ragweed. or uh, Then I'm going to try to get uh, goldenrod, different things growing, probably a mix of grass. And then hopefully there's some shrubs dotted through it. And if there's honey locust, I'm going to cut those locusts down, and I'm going to get some bare root seedling American plum, and I'm going to plant those in the treetop of that honey locust so it serves as the utilization case that's biodegradable so I don't have to worry about a plastic tube five years from now. I'm going to do that, polka dotted out through there. and I'm going to probably have four or five of them in, that, in the remainder of that three acres. And then I'll go to the edge, and I'll edge feather it to try to give it even better diversity, even more cover, um, and, and try to create um, more habitat for not only woody brows for the deer during the during the year, but specifically the stressful period of time, which is late winter, early spring. So there's woody browse available, those tops that I've cut from edge feathering. Um, but there's also good cover. And so there's going to be some deer that probably bed by that at some point during the fall, and hopefully it is during hunting season when I'm hunting that food plot, because if it's only... 150 yards from that food plot and they stand up at four o'clock in the afternoon it gets dark at 5 30 they got an hour and a half to go 150 200 yards i'd say there's a pretty good chance we're going to see them and that is just another way to to increase the diversity uh, add something that your neighbors don't and bring deer closer to the to the uh to your food plot and closer to your farm during daylight now That all sounds great, but I want more defined bedding, so that's why I ask about managing the timber, and I would say, okay, let's go in 100 yards off this three-acre field, and I'm gonna go 100 yards to the north and 100 yards to the southeast, and I'm gonna go in and cut a half acre out, and I'm just gonna cut 90% of the trees that are growing in that half acre, I'm cutting them all. And that is gonna create a dense pocket of woody structure that deer feel very comfortable bedding in. Um, and I'm going to mix up my cuts. I'm not going to do all hinge cuts. I'm going to do probably three one-third is going to be hinge cut, and that's species like hickory or flowering dogwood um, or hackberry or mulberry. and I'm going to hinge cut those, um, and I'm just going to let them provide forage for the next few years as well as cover. Then I'm going to pick the species that aren't really providing much um, structure or won't when they're cut, and I'm just going to flush cut those all the way down so a deer could step over the trunk of those and penetrate that whole acre rather than if I cut the whole half acre out and hinge cut, it wouldn't be able to use but the fringes because it's just too doggone thick. It's like trying to walk through the, the game that we played as kids, pickup sticks. Mm. It's just too dense. Okay. And so if we cut in a third that's uh, flush cut, and then we cut the other third flush cut and treat with herbicides so it does not stump sprout back. And where that stump was can be flourishing with forbs and grasses that were in that seed bank. Um, that's how we're going to create a diversity within the half acre that I cut out. Is I'm going to have forbs because of the new sunlight. I'm going to have grasses because of the new sunlight. I'm going to have a bunch of woody browse growing from both the stumps that I didn't treat and the hinge cuts. Um, and the deer can use that whole area. I think okay. that's what most people miss on their farms, is dense cover that they're not disturbing that has food available. Uh, a lot of guys will say, yeah, I've got dense cover, but when you get in there, it's, it's cover by default, or it's, it's an eastern red cedar monoculture. The only reason deer are using it is because that's the only cover that's somewhat usable. Um, or it's a lot of stems per acre. It was clear cut 15 years ago, and it's 15, 20-foot tall, thicket uh, um but it doesn't have great cover from four foot down where the deer are making their living so i'd much rather cut out uh, a half acre or an acre and uh just just give all kinds of sunlight to the forest floor i do that and i've got one on both sides of this little three acre field old field uh i have a very good chance of bringing deer during daylight into that acre into that acre Another thing you could do is edge feather. You know, edge feathering is not only great for habitat-wise of providing structure, providing woody browse. It's it's great for rabbits as well. It's great for turkey nests as well. But for hunters, we can utilize it from steering deer and directionally directionally felling trees. So I go out on the edge of that crop field and I do closed edge feathering, which is cutting the trees and directionally felling them parallel with the field edge you create a barrier that you're either going to go on one end or the other. And if you put the bedding closer on the end with the field, then they're going to come on this end of it rather than that end, the other end that's 150 yards down. And you're going to basically force them to walk through the three-acre field, walk through the acre food plot or three-quarters of an acre food plot, and then go to the crop field. Um, And then at the same time, it gives you structure so when you walk out hopefully most of the deer in the crop field at that point and you've got all that edge feathering that kind of not only provides food but cover for the deer but cover for you to enter and exit so that would probably be a good start for me
0: and then just monitor for invasions that was a very detailed and extensive answer and i i wasn't expecting that was that was quite a bit and it was good stuff it really was Uh, (laughs) <laughs> that was a that, uh, you said try to picture it and I'm like well I
1: pictured it now now let's paint some more
0: yeah yeah you, you nailed it I think but uh just um, for that human pressure would you ever put up a, a screen or are you allowing those those forbs and grasses and and shrubs to be your screen for, yeah for you definitely side? you could do a screen if you wanted
1: I would probably try to stick with the with the native side of it um, Honestly, I would probably wait to see kind of how the deer are reacting to the new laid-out habitat. Um, The edge feathering is going to be a pretty good screen. Um, And then just see what grows up in that three-acre field. Because if it's a a lot of goldenrod and Indian grass comes up or little blue stem comes up, it's going to be pretty good already. Um, Unless we really want to get over-analyzed and say, no, I want seven-foot-tall or six-foot-tall, can't hardly see through its screen. Then we would say, okay, let's go with something else. And Caven Rock Switchgrass uh, would be great if you're down south. Alamo Switchgrass or Canlow Switchgrass would be another good one. Um, those three would be probably pretty good options for a native screen
0: that uh, that can stand up to to the elements pretty well. Okay. Well, um, you know, we'll probably get it wrapping up here pretty quick, just because I know that you've got consulting, this is a this is a crazy time of year for you, but I want to do some rapid fire questions before we let you off the hook, okay? Let's hear it. All right, so this might, this is probably going to be the easiest question I've asked you the whole time. Uh, what is the best tool for habitat management?
1: Oh, man, that's hard for me to answer with one specific. It's probably, if I'm in a more open landscape, I would say a drip torch. If I'm in a more timbered landscape, I would say a chainsaw.
0: Okay. Well, yeah, I wasn't expecting that. Uh,
1: Both affordable. Both uh, can do. I feel like if you give me those two, I could work circles around people with big boy toys. Uh, Those two are pretty deadly when it comes to overall landscape management.
0: Okay, okay. Now, uh, you pretty much answered this throughout the whole podcast. Uh, Which do you prioritize first, food or cover? No, yeah, cover for sure. Yeah. cover and uh, b- probably because cause you can get you know, food out of cover as well right i'm sorry most likely because you could get uh food from some of the cover as well correct exactly yes that's
1: that's exactly it. I, I wanted to explain that a little bit because you know if you cut in young forest or we call them bedding tickets and that's what those those two cuts on that three acre field that i just went on that big long rampage about that that is basically that's food um, those those young sprouts that's all food and so long before crops and long before food plots they were making their living off of native plants and that came in many different ways that came from forbs um, shrubs saplings things like that and so um, if I'm cutting in these micro clear cuts or bedding thickets that's food um, and then if I'm removing the invasives or if the aggressive non-native species like tall fescue, I wouldn't call it an invasive, but it's definitely non-native, and a lot of our old fields are littered with it, um, if I if I remove that, then there's even more food. And so you can get a lot of food without half the plant, plant species uh, that are common in the food plot realm.
0: Okay. And what part of the year is the best time to practice habitat management?
1: Whenever you have time, um, would be my my answer there's always something to do whether you you know if the winter your kids play winter sports and you can't really get out there in the winter there's also great things to do in the middle of the summer uh, there's great things you can do right during hunting season like spraying old fields um and and prescribe fire and, and removing invasives and timber management there's no matter the time of the year there's always something to do my favorite time is the winter uh, because temperatures are cooler I can knock out a lot of stuff. I can run a chainsaw for a long time and not overheat.
0: Okay. Um, short-term habitat management versus long-term habitat management, which would you rather base your foundation off of? Long-term, 100%. one hundred Because a
1: lot of long-term management techniques also offer short-term results, um, like timber management. If you go out and you're like, okay, this is, you know, I'm managing this 30 acre woodlot, I'm doing long-term timber management, or I'm doing forest stand improvement or timber stand improvement. The difference being one is managing for a future timber harvest, and the other is just managing for a diverse forest. Um, If you're doing that sort of thing, it takes work and it takes some time, but when you're cutting trees, it's immediate results for the deer. It's immediate food on the ground, it's immediate cover on the ground, and it's not just immediately, but it's the same. It, you've got food the next summer, the next summer. You've got cover the next summer and cover the next summer. And so anytime you're managing timber and cutting trees, you just are, you, you're just not only doing long-term benefit, but short-term benefits as well. So I would definitely choose long-term, the timber stand improvement, old field management, edge feathering invasive species removal versus short-term, which is, I would probably say food plots, uh, minerals, and uh, feeders, trapping, all those I would probably lump in as short-term land management. But, um, you know, think about it. Food plots, if, if you were to go out and till up an area or spray out an area and drill in soybeans and you didn't do it the next year, it would what take two years, and you'd probably never even know that you were ever there with a the food plot if you just let it go. Mm-hmm. But if you go run yeah. a chainsaw and you cut a bunch of trees, eh, you'll be able to go back five years and ten years from now and see your work. And so that's the that's a huge win um, for for guys who are thinking long term.
0: Okay, and just for fun, deer hunting or turkey hunting.
1: Oof. People ask me that a lot. And, and I would, oh man. I used to say, kind of goes in cycles. Um, I used to say turkeys because I grew up where tur- turkeys were phenomenal in the Ozark Mountains and the deer hunting was terrible. Ah, uh, if, if I had only had, if God said you got one week left, but I'll, I'll give you any season or any time frame you want. And you know outside of, spending time with my family and it was like I'm, I'm gonna hunt at some point during this last week on earth i would probably say deer hunting during the first week of november okay all right you asked that two two years ago i said turkey hunting in the last week of april but i don't know i've changed a lot last year two years and, and to be honest with you i think one of the big parts was uh we grew a buck on a family farm or on the Uh, part of the family farm that ended up scoring one one ninety three. we didn't kill him we found a shed um and the deer vanished but he was 193 in the ozark mountains and uh i don't know that deer you know having the ability to chase a deer like that in the ozarks lit a fire in me of going you know i can do this more and more this is the first deer uh to reach that size he's not going to be the last and so now i don't know i like the cooler weather and the non the not dealing with ticks
0: yeah, yeah. Just you know, seeing that habitat management and deer management produce, and then you come up with a, a buck like that—a buck of a lifetime for most. You know, uh, that could spark a, a whole new interest for a lot of people.
1: Absolutely. For me, it was the it was just a reminder that our work is being impactful, and, and that we have the ability to grow deer of that size. You know, Iowa caliber deer, northern Missouri caliber deer in a landscape that is not supposed to, by, by what most of us believe, it should not grow those sizes, that size of the area. And we did it. And, uh, you know, it's just it's just a reminder that uh, landscape health, I mean, the farm that this beer was on was about 400 acres and there were only about six acres of food plots. So, um, you know, a pretty pretty bad ratio when you look at food plots, the total acreage, and and we did a timber harvest, we did prescribed fire, removed invasive, we opened up the canopy and let a lot of stuff grow in the woods, and it's just like, you pour all that in and make a potion, and poof, out jumps the big deer, and it's just like, it's really not that hard. We just sometimes fall into analysis paralysis, or just falling into the game of buying products rather than buying practice. Uh, and practices being timber stand improvement,
0: and old field management invasive species removal. Well, your impact has not only affected your properties and, and your habitat managements, but hunters and, and habitat managers all across the U.S. So uh, it definitely made an impact on me, and I'm really, really into it and, and trying to get other folks into it as well so we can create better uh, habitat for animals, regardless of what kind right, of deer, man. quail... Turkey. Um, That way, we can keep hunting them all. You know,
1: that's right. Yeah, that's why we're not singing the blues. Like you know, a lot of guys went through the the golden days of quail hunting, singing the blues now because you know there's not as many quail. Um, And and there's starting to be some people that start that are kind of making that same correlation with wild turkey. And I don't want to. I don't want to be singing the blues twenty years from now about the turkeys. I want to do something about it now. And I don't want to keep singing the blues about quail. I want to do something about it right now. And you know, we can all do it. We just have to work together. And it kind of gets doom and gloom in this day and age when you look at land and, and overall ecosystems. It is doom and gloom. A lot of species are, are struggling, but we're here to bring good news. And, and, and it's not hard to realize that, wow, it really doesn't take a lot of work. It doesn't take much to really make a huge difference. The problem is we just have to get more guys doing what we're doing. And that's focused on the land health and not just putting antlers on the wall. You can get antlers on the wall by focusing on the land health, but you can't get land health by focusing on antlers on the wall.
0: That makes sense. Uh, before we jump off here, where can folks find more land and legacy content? Yeah, man.
1: So they can search us on iTunes, uh, just land and legacy. That's the end sign. Or on social media, land and legacy. Uh, that's where we're at. Oh, or even on YouTube. Uh we're pretty well everywhere right now, just plugging along all over the all over the country right now. Consulting, but we try to make a post every day to encourage others
0: on practices that they should be using on their farm. Well, thanks again, Adam, and I will be looking forward to your podcasts and your videos. And I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, you know, I always seem to learn something from you guys, so I, I definitely learned s- some more today. Uh, thanks again, Adam. Appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it.